Whoa, Brando! Like, we have a new show now. Yeah, Nate, it's crazy where our journeys have taken us. Yeah, life is crazy, but, uh, what exactly are we gonna talk about? Comics? Taken. Wrestling? Taken. Video games? That too. Politics? Too boring. Shoot. Doctor Who! Too British. Yeah, fine. What if we just riff and tell stories about our life experience? That's just crazy enough to work. How does uh, every other Friday sound to you? Dude, I'm down. Guys, check out our new show, The OGs, only on the Journey to Comics Network. is that it's a journey into comics network production welcome back ladies and gentlemen this is episode 64 of poor 360 as always i am your host andrew porno thank you for joining me here now, it's kind of funny that this is episode 64 because that's how old I feel today. Uh, in this age where a lot of us are working remote, uh, I have been I've been working remote as well. It's caused a big blur in the work-life balance uh, last night. Because um, obviously, you know, as you're uh, listening to this, you know that this episode came much later than it would typically do or typically happen. It is because I was working basically from... Yesterday morning, about 7.30 in the morning until about midnight, just taking some short breaks uh, during the day for, like, eating and going to the bathroom and all of that. But it was a pretty full day. And typically, if I was going to the office, I would work till, like, 4 or 4.30, and then I would pack up and go home and deal with it the next day. But since I'm home already, it's um, pretty difficult to get away, especially when there's all these other deadlines that you have to work up against and... So, yeah, that's kind of why this episode's coming back and that. So I'm just tired and sore, and I am just want to pass out and go to sleep. But I wanted to make sure I still got you guys your, your content, so I apologize that this does come brief. Uh, I'm still working to get um, some new stuff going on with Poor360, but in these quarantine times, it does make it difficult. And now that I found out that next week, um, my company is sending me uh, on a trip. So I'll be flying uh, to Colorado, which... I'm not exactly looking forward to doing, um, especially because Colorado's just as uh, locked up as Illinois is, so it's going to be a lot of um, ca- getting carry out from restaurants and eating in my hotel room and then making, hopefully, praying that the hotel room is cleaned well and then wearing a mask on the airplane and, um, and all the things I'm going to have to run against. So I'm not really looking forward to this. It's something I was hoping I was able to do the trip in June, but... It had to happen when it happened, so got to deal with that. But yeah, now I'm just hoping that everything goes smoothly there. I still have to book my flights, but because of um, because of what's going on, that people aren't traveling, they've condensed the amount of flights that are available. So trying to get a flight in my usual time isn't really happening. So I have to kind of mess up with my trip, and it's just a little bit of a mess. So I'm hoping things are a little straightened out, but. Um, and with all with everything that's going on with like work and everything, I haven't been keeping up with the news as much. I did see that um, certain states are opening. I think the the most exciting news that I've seen come out of this is that the uh, drive-in theater that's closest to me 
uh, is opening um, this Friday. So it's exciting. It's doing like a double feature of the Flintstones and Jurassic Park. And um, I'm assuming it's the live action like the first one with like John Goodman. So I do... I haven't seen that in theaters before. Maybe when I was a kid. But Jurassic Park I think would be awesome to see in a drive-in. Just in your car. I think it's just the... I think, it'd be, I think it'd be a lot of fun, but can't go this weekend, but I think um, we're talking to some friends to work it out for next weekend, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And it's really nice to see that some businesses that are um, are able to change and they're adapting to what's going on are able to uh, kind of still continue to thrive. I know a lot of businesses that rely a lot of like on people coming into their shop and um, seeing what's going on um, have kind of come to, gone to technology to try and reach out more have done like live streams and they've done advertising and so it, it's it's been really nice to see um these places able to adapt and and that's kind of the way it has to be I, i'm still i still feel bad for every store that exists in a mall because malls have been closed and are probably the last thing to open so all those stores that are like mom and pops that are inside malls are going to be really hurting by the time things reopen so I remember reading an article, um, which I don't have in front of me, so I'll kind of have to summarize it, that's basically said that what's going on right now is basically going to be like the death knell for malls because um, big box stores in general are hurting, and as soon as you lose like a big anchor store like a Macy's or like a JCPenney, um, like we already saw a Sears all kind of falter, and we've seen um, like Kmart and all of them uh, fall as well. It's not long before we see like Macy's go that way, and Macy's is like the anchor store and like... 75% of malls out there, so um, if they go, I know a lot of malls will be end up shuttering. I know our malls, our, the mall that's closest to us is pretty sparse. Um, since, like, the Carsons, Bergners, all of that, they had all closed up, so um, I know they've been hurting, and kind of see, I know, like, I feel bad for anyone who works in a mall because you can't even have the benefit of, like, carryout because literally malls' doors are closed. The food court doesn't exist, any of the stores in there, the movie theater doesn't exist which i'm i know i some of like the last things to open but i definitely want to go to the movies and i ended up being kind of in a semi-argument because it was probably discussed uh i've listened to podcasts in a while it's been kind of a mess the only thing i did do recently um was i watched all of parks and rec while i was working tried to watch it in time for that special they aired uh would have been this past week uh about um, the stay-at-home order and all of that and the coronavirus and everything. So that was kind of nice, but I didn't end up finishing it. So I ended up finishing it uh, earlier today. So I finished the series and I watched the special again and it didn't make a difference. I thought it would. So, But I didn't. I managed, since it was announced, so about two weeks I binge-watched all of Parks and Rec. So that's a lot of show. But when you can have it on in the background and not actually watching it and you continue to work, it's kind of nice. It's good background and it's funny and it's easy to kind of leave and come back without really missing a beat which is sometimes what you need with tv during a work day especially when you're working remote like i can't watch like breaking bad or better call saul while i'm working because i will get nothing done and i also uh managed to um last night which was may the 4th so um and now we're in cinco de mayo or revenge of the fifth whatever you want to call it today um i did watch um scum and Villa cantina which is a uh a bar in Southern California that Kevin Smith and Mark Bernard intend to do like their uh, f- uh, Fat Man Beyond show from. So they've obviously been closed because a lot of stores are closed during this whole thing. Um, 
they did like a special like all day live stream event and they were selling like doing like some curbside pickup of stuff and so they were on there and they're actually doing a uh, a live commentary to um star wars um empire strikes back so episode five yes yes episode five so i got i was going to tune in so i put um Empire Strikes Back on my phone uh, from Disney Plus to watch the movie. Linked it up to the time they had on their little Periscope live stream commentary, and then I kind of half paid attention to both. And it was it was it was enjoyable. It was nice to get some of the comments about it. And it's been a while since I've watched Empire Strikes Back, so it was kind of nice to kind of be tuning in and out of it. And um, yeah, it, it was it was enjoyable. I kind of like that. It helped make my crazy workday stay a little more enjoyable. But um, kind of that was kind of a long story back to what I was talking about, which was so I ended up in an argument with a friend about um, what happened involving uh, trolls. So this may have been discussed before. I apologize if it's if it comes up again. I don't know if it's probably another podcast on the network. So uh, bear with me. So basically, Trolls Two um, was released in theaters, and all this happened. So they released it on demand, so people could rent it from home for like 20 bucks for like 24 hours or something like that never saw the first one didn't rent this one it looked interesting not my thing i don't have children so didn't happen but um universal was like hey this isn't a bad idea we made more money doing it this way than we did um playing in theaters so and so that's more way they get to keep because they don't have to go through the distribution deals with major studio or with a uh, with theater chain so like oh this is something to look at for future and so because usually, like, VOD usually assign the movie's not good or they don't expect it to do well, so they kind of dump it on VOD and hope people find it at a rental store, like a Blockbuster or Family Video or whatever. But in the age of streaming, this VOD is now um, kind of plays better. So people are like, I'm stuck at home, I can't go see them, but oh, I can pay 20 bucks, which is less than I would if I would have gone to the theater. Because I'm like, oh, if I take me and my four kids to the movies, we're all paying... 8 to $12 for a ticket plus concessions because all the kids are going to need their own popcorn and all that. So I'm going to end up spending like 100 bucks on this. But I can make $20 to eat at home and save me some money and get the same movie. So they're like, oh, let's do this. And then it really pissed off AMC. So, thank you. Sorry, my wife decided to pass me a cat. So, um, yeah, so basically this royally pissed off AMC who's like, obviously they need movies to be able to have people come to their theaters so they were like all right well now that you've decided they're going to do this which they may have been reading too much into it but i understand they're scared because really their money they don't make much the studios keep the majority of the profit anyway from the film so their money's on concessions and if people aren't going to the theater so they can rent it at home they're not selling concessions meaning they're going out of business fast and amc is probably the one of the larger amount of theaters in the u.s and probably the world because they're partially owned by a chinese company so they did this, and then it caused a whole thing and a beef. And then I think Regal or Cinemark got involved with it well and agreed. So they basically said they were going to not play any Universal films, which is funny because Fastbury Sign comes out next year, and that's going to make billions and billions of dollars. So I think they're crazy for banning it. But I know it's just posturing. It's the same reason like when Disney and Sony were being kind of dicks about Spider-Man. So basically I think it's just... Big corporations just kind of being like, well, I don't want to play. It's just big corporations play, acting like preschoolers. So, um, as far as I know, I think that's still... It's kind of they both backed down. It was just kind of a big 
showing their teeth to each other like they're big apes in a in a zoo. But but it was a giant kind of an argument. My friend was basically saying like, why do theaters even matter anymore? Like I'd much rather stay at home and AMC's in the wrong. And I was basically like, I, I just I was basically saying like I disagree because I don't know. For me, I think a theater's whole other thing. I'd much rather watch a film in a theater with an audience because especially like horror films, it's much better with a thing. And I think a lot of films like. If I watched, let's say, Endgame for the first time at home by myself on the screen, oh, it would have been great, but being in a, a group in a theater watching on the big screen and seeing like the people around you react to the big moments and the sad moments and the heroic moments, then it kind of made it a lot more... Felt better. The same reason like when Nate and I last year went and saw Jay and, Bob, Jay and Silent Bob reboot with a much watch who love Kevin Smith films, it was a much better feeling than I would have had than if I watched it by myself at home. Yes, there are benefits to to both, but I'm never going to give up my movie-going experience, whether it comes to safety or money or whatever. I Theaters are kind of in my blood, and i got to kind of see those through. So, I don't know, I, that was kind of my little argument. I And I understand where people are coming from. They don't want to spend, oh, like $20 on a ticket, and then $20 on concessions, and then if there's two of you, it's double it, essentially. I don't know there's ways to do it and all that. And, like, I do the A-list, which... I don't know with everything going on if A-List is still going to exist when they come back, but it was good while it lasted, I guess. Because um, A-List is like, you can see three movies a week for $21 a month, which is a really good deal considering tickets are 8 to 12 bucks. So if you see two movies in a month, pays for itself. And then, like gyms and all of that, that service stopped once everything shut down, so I'm not being charged for not seeing movies. So benefit there, but I understand there are probably... There's a lot of people who don't do it even though they should, and... We'll kind of see uh, if that still exists. I think they still have to honor it for at least a year, but they might phase that out as soon as they can or make make more restrictions on it. Like when MoviePass wasn't doing well and they started being like, oh, they have to block out these movies or they have to block out these times or they have to charge a surcharge because of uh, it's a Friday night at 7 o'clock or whatever. I don't know what they're going to plan to do. I know they're hurting. There's talk of them uh, filing for bankruptcy and all that. So it's really too soon to say what's going to happen. And then we saw that... Um, it's kind of sticking with movies. We saw that um, the Academy uh, of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences recently said that basically this year and probably moving forward that a movie doesn't need a theatrical run to qualify to be nominated for an award up, up to and including Best Picture. So it does, I thought, made it kind of a gray area because if a movie doesn't need a theatrical run, what is it stopping like a TV movie, like an HBO movie or a... Like, it doesn't really ever happen, but, like, a Hallmark movie from qualifying. So, I think it it does open a kind of a Pandora's box of what can and can't happen, and I'm sure they're going to tighten up the rules once things are over, but people are just trying to put band-aids on things that are broken right now with everything kind of shut down. But it's just, we're kind of in an interesting, uh, changing landscape right now, and um, it'll be interesting to see what our new normal is on the other side of this thing. Is it going to be 100% back the way it was before? Probably not. It would be nice, but I don't think so. I mean, we're already seeing gas prices go back up, but in some restaurants, like non-essential businesses, and so are able to open for curbs that couldn't open before. Um, like ice cream shops. Like I already talked about the drive-in and just stuff that's allowing us more access to have a sense of normalcy. But it's we're still a far cry from going out to eat at a restaurant or going to a movie. Um, 
it's going to be masks or limited capacity or all of the above. And I'm already sick of the mask I have to wear. I'm wearing it because I have to. And we'll kind of just see uh, what happens. I'm probably not looking forward to hopefully not wearing it for a three-hour flight next week. But we'll kind of have to see. Um, and really, if that wasn't all bad enough, then we also have the fact that murder hornets are now a thing. Um, which may have been talked about before, uh, like I said. But... Uh, they're coming out, they're decimating honeybees, and they're just being dicks in general. And they're from Asia, and people are like, oh, great, another thing, bad thing from Asia. It's like, yes, this, don't be ridiculous. So, what I have here is, um, this is an NPR interview, which I don't know how you feel about NPR. You might disagree. Uh, I, I don't know. But basically, um, the New York Times informed... Uh, this this is the transcript from the interview with Ari Shapiro, who's a host on NPR, as he was uh, interviewing Ruthie Danielson, who's a beekeeper in Birch Bay, Washington, which is near the border of Canada. So, as if the pandemic and economic meltdown aren't bad enough, now the New York Times informs us that the murder hornets have arrived in the Pacific Northwest. Officially, the insect is called the Asian giant hornet. They can grow up to two inches long, and they have the habit of decapitating entire colonies of honeybees, literally just ripping their head off and then taking their thorax back to their young. They also cause a lot of pain to humans, beekeepers, and entomologists are racing to find a way to wipe out any nest in the U.S. before the species can take hold. Ruthie Danielson is a beekeeper in Birch Bay, Washington, near the border with Canada. Um, he goes on to say that these hornets typically found in Asia, but late last year they were found in Canada and then Washington State. Uh, what was your first reaction when you heard that they arrived in the U.S.? Uh, Danielson said, oh, my first reaction was horror that we had just yet another invasive species that is North America that can they can be, you know, attack my hives. The second response would be, what can we do to protect our hives? What can we do to individuals to get involved and do something about it? Uh, Shabir then says, the reason we're speaking to you now is that there's an effort to find it to trap these hornets. I understand that you're part of the effort. Um, tell us what's involved. So Danielson says, so in working with the Washington State Department of Agriculture, our beekeeping members to play sap traps to capture the queens. The queens come out from underground. They're overwintering. And first thing they want is to go for sap for carbohydrates. So this is the moment that you get them, is what Shapiro said. Danielson moves on to say, this is the moment that you get them. Not feeding after being underground all winter, and after being fed, got a little carb, got a little protein, then they'll go and create another nest. And so one queen, is, and so one queen in the fall can produce hundreds of new queens for the next year. Um, Shapiro says, "I mean, what do you think the chances are? Can this invasion be stopped?" Danielson said, "Well, I'm hopeful, so I'm going to say yes. If we don't capture any queens, the next phase will will be to see if we can capture any of the workers. Those are different types of traps. They're made with orange juice and rice wine." That's what we use. That's what they use in Japan to trap these creatures. So we'll be putting out bottle traps in the next phase, which is June, July, August, the summertime. Obviously, um, uh, she were asked, "Have you seen one of them?" Danielson said, "Yes." The Washington State Department should brought one to our meeting to show us the size, so that we could, you know, when you're a beekeeper, you understand different insects. We've never seen anything this big. It's the largest hornet in the world. I mean, it's literally the size of your thumb. I liken it to a small hummingbird. They're really big. So Shapiro says, how worried are you for the future of your bees and the bees in the Pacific Northwest and the United States generally because of this arrival? Danielson says, well, we're very concerned. Uh, as all people in North America should be, it's an invasive species that comes here. It's never been here before and our bees don't know how to protect themselves or can't protect themselves. But we're the first line of defense. So what you do is get involved. You try to do something about it. So, yeah, the Asian giant hornet is or murder hornets because they just decimate uh bee pollination which sucks bees honey um they pollinate a lot of like orchards and everything else they're basically the backbone of growing plants in the economy which is why 
do you remember the movie um there was the happening the where basically like, all the bees died then all the everything just fall into chaos kind of like that um without bees there's really not any plants i remember out, i went to a meadery last year and um had this whole discussion about because meat is honey wine so bees are a big part of that and i know this would decimate their industry obviously because no bees no honey no wine all of that people would be sad so definitely hopefully this they're able to figure out how to catch the queens before they reproduce and just kind of eliminate them out of the u.s um but given our track record with dealing with like the coronavirus, I don't have a lot of high hopes for um, how we can resolve this. Speaking of coronavirus, um, Anthony Fauci, who's basically the go-to person to talk about when you're talking about coronavirus, uh, he was talking um, on the point about uh, basically crushed Donald Trump's theory on the origins of the coronavirus. So... For weeks now, President Donald Trump has been making the case that coronavirus originated not in nature, but in a lab in Wuhan, China. He said late last week that he had a high degree of confidence that that was what happened, although he didn't specify why he felt that way, and on Sunday night in a Fox Town Hall offered cryptically something happened. Enter Anthony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, and perhaps the single most prominent doctor in the world at the moment. In an interview with National Institute Drive, it posted on Monday night, Fauci was definitive about the origins of the virus, which has sickened more than a million Americans and killed more than 68,000. If you look at the evolution of the virus in bats and what's out there now, it's very, very strongly leading towards this could have not been artificially or deliberately manipulated. Everything about the stepwise evolution over time strongly indicates that the virus evolved in nature and then jumped species. Now, before we play the game of he said, she said, or he said, he said, remember this, only one of the two people in the world renowned infectious disease expert, and it's not Donald Trump. In short, Fauci's view of the origin of the disease matters a whole lot more than Trump's opinion about where it came from, especially because, outside of Trump and his immediate inner circle, most people in a position to know are very, very skeptical of the Trump narrative that the virus came out of a lab, whether accidentally or on purpose. Like the intelligence community, which in a statement last week via the Office of the Director of National Intelligence said this, The intelligence community also encouraged the wide scientific consensus that the COVID-19 virus was not made-made or genetically modified. And like our intelligence partners in the Five Eyes, the U.S., United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, we think it's highly unlikely it was an accident. Um, it's highly likely that it was naturally occurring and that uh, the human infection was from natural human and human uh, human and animal interaction. Even Trump Secretary of State Mike Pompeo got himself wrapped in a logical pretzel while trying to defend his boss's claim and the, the uh, mounting evidence is simply wrong. Um, so here's a little bit of his interview. He said... Um, uh, Radatz, who's um, from ABC, uh, and Pipe, Mike Pompeo, who's Secretary of State. So, Radatz said, do you believe it was man-made or genetically modified? Pompeo said, look, the best expert so far seems to think it was man-made. I have no reason to disbelieve that is the point. Radatz said, your office of the DNI says the consensus, the scientific consensus was not man-made or genetically modified. Pompeo said, that's right. I agree with that. Yes, I've seen their analysis. I've seen the summary that you saw that was released publicly. I have no reason to doubt that this is accurate at this point. Rodat said, okay, just to be clear, you do not think it was man-made or genetically modified. Bobby said, I've seen what the intelligence community has said. I have no reason to believe that they've got it wrong. Wait, what? So the best expert says it was man-made, except that the DNI says it wasn't, and Pompeo agrees with the intelligence community. I mean, what? That's just a mouthful. It's very confusing. So the back and forth over the web the virus originated, and how is simply the latest example of how Trump seeks to shape reality if it is predetermined conclusion. He needs something to blame for the virus, and Mother Nature isn't cutting it. So he turns to China and decided that they made it in the lab, and as he said, a Sunday night town hall, it should have been stopped, it could have been stopped on the spot. 
It's possible that Trump knows something that the broader intelligence community in the U.S. doesn't. Um, it's technically possible, but the likeness is far from it. But the bulk intelligence gathering science to the point all seems to point away from the collusion into a natural origin of, for the virus. Against the weight of the evidence, Trump said that when asked to explain his variant view, I can tell you I'm not allowed to tell you that. In other words, just trust me, which, well, okay. So basically that's what's going down. And given the fact that there, nothing's really coming of this, um, the White House decided that they were going to wind down their coronavirus task force. So, President Donald Trump's coronavirus task force is, is in the early stages of winding down. According to... Two people familiar with the matter, the meeting in the Situation Room have been shorter and they no longer meet every day. According to the two people, Miss Doctors Deborah Bricks and Anthony Fauci are still expected to be at the White House on a daily basis, but other members of the task force may be less physically present. However, two separate sources familiar with the meeting noted that the task force met on Tuesday. Trump tapped Vice President Mike Pence to lead the panel in late February, weeks after the first known case in the U.S. and a few days after he first publicly reported coronavirus-related deaths in the country. Penciled at NBC News on Tuesday that there is no set date for the task force to formally complete its work, but said that the panel expects to begin to transition its centralized response back to the individual federal agencies in late May or early June. Ben said the group has already had discussions about such a transition plan with the Federal Emergency Management Agency. As I've said before, as we continue to practice social distancing and states engage in safe and responsible reopening plans, I truly believe that the trend line supported that we could be in a very different place, he said. Pence also said that Burks will continue to offer expertise as the administration monitors infection rates as states begin to reopen. We'll still keep a close eye on the data because we have a very good data now. It looks it took us a while to build that capacity, and we'll make sure that you know we are watching at that at the federal level. The task force until recently had held nearly daily televised briefings and was often a lightning rod for controversy. The president often used the podium to blast critics, spar with reporters, and boast about his administration's response as infections rates climbed. The number of confirmed U.S. coronavirus cases is nearing 1.2 million, according to the data compiled by John Hopkins University. As of Tuesday afternoon, they have been over 70,000 cases, according to John Hopkins. The briefing also introduced the wider public to Fauci and Burks, two of the nation's leading infectious disease doctors. The administration has faced lingering criticism over its coronavirus response. Trump has in recent weeks encouraged states to start easing restrictions put in place to stop the spread of coronavirus, despite warnings from the health experts that reopening too soon could lead to more deaths and economic damage. During an April teleconference with Pence, Democrats laid bare their deep-seated frustrations with this administration and the task force. During a call, for instance, with Maine Senator Angus King, an independent Duke caucuses with the Democrats, told Pence and the, and the task force he had never been so mad about a phone call in my life and the administration's lack of national testing is a dereliction of duty. In late April, Trump announced... Um, a new federal coronavirus testing blueprint aid governors in ramping up capacity as a handful of states, such as Georgia and Colorado, begin slowly lifting stay-at-home restrictions. Trump said the plan includes provisions to expand state testing capacity and establish widespread monitoring systems. So yeah, it seems like there's a lot going on. I'm still kind of keeping track of all this as it develops. Um, yeah, I think we'll just kind of see what happens here, but in the meantime... We'll just have to um, kind of see what shakes out. But I think that'll do it for this week's Poor 360. Sorry, it was a fast one. Like I said, I've been up late. I worked to midnight last night. I worked a full day today, and I am just wiped out. But I'm always here to talk to you guys, more to bring content. I know we're doing a supercast tomorrow, so stay tuned for that. It'll be a lot of fun. I'm trying to unwind the best I can because this week's already been hell. But 
That will do it for episode 64 of Poor360. I've been Andrew Port, and you guys have a great day.